One man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week we will examine a different entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. Today we will be reviewing 1981's heartwarming tale of man's best friend, Cujo. I just want to preface this review by reminding you, or informing you if you haven't known this, that Stephen King was so coked up during this time period he doesn't remember writing this book at all. Just keep that in mind during this review. Now, I just want to take a moment and thank all the listeners out there. I, I At the time of this recording, uh, the Stephen King cast has had 330 listens. Um, that might be, you know, uh, just change uh, in a bucket. Um, is that the right metaphor? I don't know. But <laughs> that uh, it might not seem a lot, um, but it's a lot to me because when I started, I didn't think I was going to get any listens. I was really just doing this, you know, for myself as just – you know, just a, a way to, to keep, uh, you know, being, you know, creative, you know, uh, and just I, I had the software um, and, and I just wanted to do something creative. So I, I thought of this and like I said, you know, I wanted to just create the kind of podcast that I, I, I wanted to listen to myself. Um, I, I didn't know if I was going to get any views. I, I didn't know if it was going to just expand beyond the circle of my friends. Even to say that I didn't even know my friends were going to listen. Um but, you know, I mean, people are out there listening to this. You know, it's 330. Um, that, to me, is a lot, and I really appreciate it. So um, I don't know at the time at, when this drops if that's going to increase or people have listened to the earlier ones and said, I've had enough of this guy. But regardless, um, as of right now, I just really appreciate all the, all the listens, um, you know, and, and those of you that have followed me on, on Instagram, on Twitter, I just, I really, really appreciate it. Um, so just, if you keep coming back, I'm going to keep pumping them out. Um, and, and feel free to write at any time because, like I said, I don't want this to be just a one-way communication. I, I really want this to be back and forth. I really want to hear what you have to say. So feel free to write in. If I say, if I say anything that you disagree with, um, just write in. So, I mean, I, I can read, you know, what you, what, you know, how you feel. Um, on the air, and uh, you know, we, we can have a discourse about this because I honestly do not want this to be all me. Because you know, who am I? I mean, I, and and during my analysis of any one particular book, I might miss things. You know, I mean, there's times I'll be honest with this book especially, and I'll get into it later that I, I kind of might glance over something here and there, and I might miss something that's incredibly important. Um, so please feel free to to drop me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So I've only read this book once before, um, so rereading it, uh, it it was an experience. I'll, I'll say that much at least. Uh, and unfortunately, for me, uh, it wasn't a pleasant one. Uh, but I'll get into that in a moment. But first, I want to read the Wikipedia summary in order to lay the foundation upon which I'll build my review. And just so you know, I've been joined uh, in this podcast by my own two personal cujos, my faithful companions. Um, so if you hear any snorting uh, and and growling and uh, wheezing in the background, that's that's my little podcast hosts over here. So Wikipedia uh, summary states that the story takes place in the fictional town of Castle Rock, Maine, the setting of numerous King works, and revolves around two local families. The narrative in is interspersed with vignettes 
from the seemingly mundane lives of various other residents. There are no chapter headings, but rather breaks in between passages which indicate when the narration switches to a different point of view. I'm going to stop right there um, and say that I, I really like the fact that the Wikipedia summary uh, just tackled the structure of the book um, and, and, and the fact that it revolves around two local families. I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just supposed to read the Wikipedia summary. I don't really want... I, I, I just... I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to sink my teeth into this book. Uh, okay, so anyway, I'm sorry. I'm going to keep going. The principal characters are the Trenton and the Camber families. The middle-class Trentons have recently moved to Castle Rock from New York bringing with them their four-year-old son, Tad. Father Vic discovers that his wife, Donna, has recently concluded an affair. In the midst of this household tension, Vic's fledgling advertising agency is failing, and he is forced to travel out of town, leaving Tad and Donna at home. The blue-collar Cambers are longtime residents. Joe is a shade tree mechanic who dominates and abuses his wife, Charity, and their 10-year-old son, Brett. Charity wins a 5,000 lottery prize and uses the proceeds to inveigle Joe into allowing her to take Brett on a trip to visit Charity's sister Holly in Connecticut. Joe acquiesces, secretly planning to use the time to take a pleasure trip to Boston. Cujo, the camber's large, good-natured St. Bernard, chases a wild rabbit in the fields around their house and inserts his head in the entrance to a small limestone cave where a rabid bat bites him on the nose and infects him with the virus that causes Cujo's madness in one day. Soon after, Charity and Brett leave town. Cujo attacks and kills their alcoholic neighbor, Gary Purvier. He returns to Camber House and kills Joe while he attempts to call authorities for help. Donna, home alone with Tad, takes their failing Ford Pinto to the Cambers for repairs. The car breaks down in Camber's dooryard, and as Donna attempts to find Joe, Cujo appears and is ready to pounce. She climbs back in the car, and Cujo starts to attack. Donna and Tad are trapped in their vehicle, the interior of which becomes increasingly hot in the sun. During one attempt to escape, Donna is bitten in the stomach and leg, but manages to survive and escape back into the car. She plans to run for the Camber's home, but abandons the idea due to her fears that the door will be locked and she will be subsequently killed by Cujo, leaving her son alone. Vic returns to Castle Rock after failed attempts to contact Donna and learns from the police that Steve Kemp, the man with whom Donna was having an affair, is suspected of ransacking his home and possibly kidnapping Donna and Tad. In an effort to explore all leads, the state police send Castle Rock Sheriff George Bannerman out to the Cambers' house, but Cujo attacks and kills him. Donna, after witnessing the attack and realizing that Tad is in danger of dying of dehydration, faces Cujo down with a baseball bat breaking it over his head and fatally stabbing him in the eye with a broken end. Vic arrives immediately afterwards, only to discover that Tad has died. Donna is rushed to the hospital, and Cujo's head is removed for a biopsy prior to cremation of his remains, which are then thrown into Augusta's waste treatment plant. The novel ends several months later with both the Trenton and Camber families trying to go on with their lives. Donna has completed her treatment for rabies and survived her marriage with Vic, and Charity gives Brett a new vaccinated puppy named Willie. A postscript reminds the reader that Cujo was a good dog who always tried to keep his owners happy, but the ravage of rabies drove him to violence. Okay, uh, so I guess I'm going to start with the, uh, with the objectivity of the reviewer, myself, and a little bit of positive. So, just right away, the book starts with a reference to the Dead Zone, and by immediately referencing the events of the Dead Zone... Stephen King categorizes Cujo as a quasi-sequel. 
So while not a sequel in the sense that it picks up where we left off in terms of characters, it's a sequel in the sense that it picks up where we left off with the setting, this case, in the town of Castle Rock. It's going to be the first novel he sets the events in for the entire narrative, and with it, he establishes a clear continuity within his novels. This takes place in the same world as The Dead Zone, a world where Carrie didn't happen, but an author named Stephen King published a book with that name. A town named Jerusalem's lot exists nearby, but whether that town is overrun with vampires, we don't know. Regardless, we see that King is starting to have fun with his stories, and by presenting Easter eggs, he allows an interactivity with the audience that has experienced regularly with television these days, as seen with the analysis and code-breaking of shows like Mad Men, Lost, Breaking Bad, True Detective, and How I Met Your Mother. So the opening of Cujo doesn't just rehash the events of The Dead Zone but reveals that the townspeople have mythologized Frank Dodds, the serial killer who had been stopped by Johnny Smith and Sheriff Bannerman in the events of the Dead Zone. He might have killed himself, but his memory lives on, and has since mutated into the Boogeyman, a dark fairy tale parents tell their children to warn them of the dangers of the real world. In a sense, the adults immortalize the killer, paying tribute to the evil that lurked within him, the evil that could have dissipated upon his death had they never mentioned him again, but because they chose to, they reawoke it, they fed it, and allowed it to take a new form. It's a fantastic way to start the novel, and establishes a clear link between the two very different books, a link outside of the setting itself, a link in the form of the concept of evil, which chooses to take many forms, first introduced as a disturbed young man, and in the case of this novel, a rabid dog. So despite the fact that this really is just a novel about a rabid dog, um, Stephen King imbues it with uh, the, the supernatural horror. So, I mean, th this is clearly in the realm of the supernatural. So over the last couple weeks, I've discussed the diversity amongst the Stephen King books. You had Carrie, which was a sci-fi novel. You had Salem's Lot, which was a horror novel. You had The Shining, which was a horror novel. You had... Um, Night Shift, which uh, was just a, a collection of previously published materials, all of which, you know, are horror with a little bit of sci-fi. You had a uh, fantasy set within a post-apocalyptic world with The Stand. You had a thriller with The Dead Zone. You had a sci-fi thriller with Firestarter. And then here we are with Cujo, which is um, it's a psychological thriller with a lot of horror overtones. I mean, make no mistake, this is firmly in the realm of supernatural. It's pretty overt, and I didn't realize that um, when I first read it. Maybe I did, I don't know, maybe I just forgot. But, um, or maybe it's just that in the, uh, you know, the the, the pop culture um, of Cujo has just, you know, the, the cliff notes, I guess, so to speak. Um, the, the greatest hits, just I think of Cujo, the association is, oh, it's the story of the rabid dog. I, I don't remember the whole deal with the, you know, the, the closet or the, the evil being reborn um, as, you know, as the, the rabies. Um, but no, I mean, it. this is a small town, and unlike, I don't know, when Salem's Lot first began, you know, Stephen King didn't didn't present it as 100% idealistic. He showed the the a little bit of ugliness within Salem's Lot, but he did show its good side. This seems more along the lines of maybe what you would kind of see in in Children of the Corn. Now, bear with me. Um, you see the characters almost paying worship to this evil, okay? By by talking about it, um, 
you know, the, and, and when the, the, the old resident is, is looking on the horizon and the heat wave is coming in, um, that to me, it just, there's almost a, an almost religion there where you're paying worship to, uh, you know, some deity. And in this case, it's a dark deity that, that comes back to your town in the form of this dog. Regardless, um, King, in the very, very beginning of the novel, builds a very strong, strong sense of dread. Um, and he gives a, an ominous malevolence to this oncoming heat wave that, that when it breaks, um, it, it just breaks over the townspeople of Castle Rock like an infectious disease. And here's the issue that I have with this novel. In every of the podcasts so far, I've referenced Stephen King as being an optimistic writer, someone that believes in the goodness of humanity, someone, and, and, and humanity is, is represented by the people that inhabit these small towns. Sometimes they'll encounter people of, of low quality and low character and low intelligence um, that do mean things in these small towns, but you know the, 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 our main characters in this novel always rise above the limitations that can be found within small towns and just the limitations found within humanity for people that tend to sink lower our protagonists always rise a little bit higher but that writer is nowhere to be found in this novel at all it's it's a dark look at small towns it's just a dark look at humanity young marriages are betrayed with infidelity townspeople snap and bite at each other irritably Man's best friend is man's greatest enemy, and mothers wake from nightmares in which their husbands stab their children with pitchforks. This, re you know, revealing a very dark fear that your partner doesn't love your child. You know, uh, we see abuse. Um, you know, we see revenge. We see petty revenge. Uh, th this is not an idealistic small town at all. You know, this is ugly. It's an ugly, ugly book. Um... And I'm going to be very honest, reading it was a chore because I didn't like it. I didn't like reading this at all um, it, because it was just so ugly and unrelentingly brutal and the characters are just punished for no reason. Um, it didn't have to be what it was. And I'm reading the, um, the paperback Signet edition uh, and it's 304 pages of just punishment for the characters um and i just I, I didn't find any joy usually you'll find joy you'll find jokes you know and i've cracked jokes at you know how, how bad some of the jokes are in these books and how funny um you know his characters find it but you won't find any of that here it's just grim uh and it's it's mean and it's like i said the the only word that just keeps coming to mind is just ugly you just see the ugly side of of humanity um, and you see the ugly side of the, the town people. Uh, and so basically when Cujo goes into a rage, his rage is indicative of the rage and the ugliness that the entire town is feeling. So it's not just the story of a rabid dog. It's a story of just, you know, a diseased uh, town during this heat wave. Um, you know, the, the heat wave being the sickness with, you know, the many people in town exhibiting symptoms, Cujo being the, the worst of all. But, you know, that that's, you know, maybe people out there, you know, like it. Like I said, it's been a long time since I've read it. I've only read it once, and I don't remember it being just so bleak. 
uh, and and the reason at the beginning of the podcast I referenced Stephen King's uh, 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 you know substance abuse at this time. He has no recollection of writing this book, which is unbelievable to me. Um, first of all, if he doesn't remember writing this and he's under that much of an influence, I still have to say, I mean, the, the fact that he was able to craft a novel um, that at times is a pure adrenaline, you know, tension-filled, you know, thrill ride. It, even when he is so far gone, he is so, so good. It's unbelievable. But with that said, um, it, it's still a book that I, I, you know, ultimately I, I, I had some issues with. Um, and I, I even kind of, I feel bad, you know, um, ripping it to shreds, and I apologize for the um, the change in noise in the background. My my air just shut off. Um, but I, I, you know, I feel bad even ripping it to shreds because he. I don't even know what was intentional or unintentional because he doesn't even remember writing it. Um, but anyway, I'm gonna get into <clears throat> my review as I usually do. I'm gonna look at the characters, um, and as I was taking my notes, you know, the first character that I started, you know, writing about is Tad, but by the end of the novel, I, I can't even classify him as a character, and I'll get into that, but, you know, unlike Danny Torrance here, or Charlie McGee, he can't shine, he's not a fire starter, he is just a boy who, from the first time we meet him, happens to be the object of the boogeyman's desire. Now, there's two ways of looking at the opening here. Either Tad imagines a monster lurking in his closet, like a young child might, <laughs> but most children are not murdered by the thing that they imagine seeing in their closet. The second way of looking at it is that there really was something in the closet, marking him and telling him exactly what form it was going to be taking when it finally comes for him. So one can argue that the scenes with the monster in the closet are told through Danny's perspective and are therefore biased. Um, there is a monster in the closet because Danny thinks there's a monster in the closet. However, my interpretation is that there's no imagine necessary. There's a goddamn monster in his closet, and it comes for him uh, later on in the story. So when I first read Cujo, I remember Tad being much more definitive of a character. But upon this reread, he just really all Tad is, and this is this is terrible here, because um, place in context what happens to Tad here, but all that he is is a plot device. He's just no more than a bomb ready to go off or a loaded gun ready to be fired. With Tad, King A establishes the supernatural qualities of the threat by making Cujo the monster in his closet, and B creates a sense of urgency. Mother has to get the son out of the car. Mother can't get son out of the car because monster dog is outside. It's really that simple, and Tad doesn't do much to, uh, you know, he doesn't do much but to serve as a, as a gauge that we use to, to measure the level of tension within the story. You know, and, and then when his convulsion comes unexpectedly on page 254, I, I recognize the sensation of the stakes being raised, but I didn't feel the sympathy I wanted to feel for this character because I didn't feel there was there was too much to him as a character. And ultimately, when Vic arrives on the scene after Donna has um, killed Cujo, and his discovery of, uh, of Danny it, it is written through Donna's point of view so she hears him rather than focusing really through uh through Vic's perspective and it's it's so matter of fact by Vic saying Donna how long has he been dead it's horrifying how impersonal 
it is for us that we don't experience it. It's just, it's a punch in the gut. And this poor kid, and yeah, I get it. He's not a real person. This didn't really happen. But, you know, by writing this, anyone, you know, reading this that has ever lost a child, uh, this is going to be tough. And, you know, I mean, I know that a writer doesn't owe you know, his readers anything, you know, the writer ultimately is telling a story and, and this is fiction, this did not happen, but, you know, you, you are writing in a world where people have suffered loss. So I think that you do have to take these things lightly. And I'm not saying that the death of a child in a story isn't ever warranted. I think that it is if it's handled the right way. I just don't think in this book it was handled the right way because I don't think that Ted ever really was a character. And maybe ultimately that that makes it a little bit better because he really wasn't a character. But at the same time, I just I don't I, I just think it's it's handled um, a little clumsily. And if anyone ever felt uh, hurt by this because it dredged up memories of of bad times for themselves, I, I wouldn't blame them. Uh, and then really, you know, I mean, typically during this part of the podcast I, I review the the characters um and and to me there there's really i just talked about tad but i i don't really think tad's much of a character i think there's only really two characters in this novel i think that it's cujo and donna and everyone else doesn't really matter i don't think vic matters i don't think steve kemp matters i don't think charity or brett or joe really matter i, I don't they don't really do much there's really not much to talk about i think that's all about Donna and Cujo. So I'm going to talk about Cujo now. Um, in horror movies, it, it's not uncommon to film scenes in monster vision. You know, the, the camera acting as the eyes of the monster. Most famously, uh, Spielberg shot many scenes through the shark's perspective in Jaws. King goes one step further here, actually getting into the thought process of Cujo. Now, he, he doesn't anthropomorphize the, the creature. He doesn't act like a human. You know, Cujo doesn't think like a human. You know, King manages to capture the existence of being a dog. <laughs> well, I guess, as far as I can tell, you know, you know, with authenticity here. But, um, you know, not being a dog myself, I, I can't say for certainty, but the scenes through Cujo's perspective are effective uh, at making him an actual character rather than just a monster to be afraid of. You know, to be perfectly honest, you know, by the end of the novel and the entire time throughout, I, I just couldn't help but feel for Cujo. Because ultimately, he's just as much as a victim in the story as Tad was, as, as Donna is. And he's not making the choice to attack the humans. You know, the rabies, which is the evil that had once been Frank Dodds, has possessed the once friendly dog, not dissimilarly from the way in which the vampires took over the bodies of the victims in Salem's Lot. Cujo, to me, is much more of a sympathetic character than, than, than Jack Torrance, you know, who, uh, you know, stewed with his, within his own form of rabies. You know, when given the opportunity, Jack consciously sold his soul and let his humanity get ripped apart by the forces in the Overlook Hotel. Cujo's humanity, if you will, is taken from him. He's never given a chance. And he's corrupted from the inside out. So to me, Cujo's, you know, his story, it's the saddest. You know, for me to say that um, about a novel in which a five-year-old dies, it's, I think that's saying a lot. Maybe it's because King masterfully makes me care about this dog more so than the humans. Or maybe I just have a soft spot for dogs, and the thought of my own dogs transforming from the living teddy bears they are into rage-fueled monsters whose only purpose is to now harm me is heartbreaking. So, you know, one, um, there, there's many, many sequences in which we, we, we get um, the perspective of Cujo 
um, you know, and we get one on, on page 20 to 21. I, I don't know if it's exactly the, the first time, you know, we, uh, we see it, but, uh, you know, Cujo trotted away. He shook himself again. He pawed helplessly at his muzzle. So this is during the, the time when, when he just got bit by the rabies. Um, the blood was already clotting, drying to a cake, but it hurt. Dogs have a sense of self-consciousness that is far out of proportion to their intelligence, and Cujo was disgusted with himself. Ah, Cujo. He didn't want to go home. If he went home, one of his trinity, the man, the woman, or the boy, all capitalized, by the way, would see that he had done something to himself, and it was possible that one of them might call him bad dog, all capitalized one word. And at this particular moment, he certainly considered himself to be a bad dog. Ah, See, that, that to me, I, that makes me feel so much worse than anything that happens to the characters. Um, on page 37, we see that he's starting to change. Now that the rabies are in him, uh, is starting to work you know, the, their way through him, uh, King writes, Cujo thumped his tail a little. He didn't know what this man was saying, but the rhythms were familiar and the patterns were soothing. These polemics had gone on a dozen times a week since... Well, as far as Cujo was concerned, since forever. Cujo liked this man, who always had food. Just lately, Cujo didn't seem to want food, but if the man wanted him to eat, he would. Then he could lie here, as he was now, and listen to the soothing talk. All in all, Cujo didn't feel very well. He hadn't growled at the man because he was hot, but simply because he didn't feel good. For a moment there, just a moment, he had felt like biting the man. So as you can see, you know, Cujo is, is starting to turn. And I'm telling you, this breaks my heart, you know, more than, than you know, what happens to the characters. It, 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 you know, I feel more for this than I feel for, for you know, the, the struggles of Vic and Donna and the whole infidelity and the affair and, you know, and, and Vic's stupid story about the, 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 the ad agency. That to me is, you know, so irrelevant to the plot. Um, and this, you know, Cujo, this is the plot. This is the character. It's, it's, it's the title of the novel and it's something that we all can relate to, you know, whether we've owned a dog, you know, we, we all are all familiar with dogs. You might not be dog people. Um, you know, but even if you've owned a cat, you know, the feeling of, of what it's like to have a pet and to actually read about this, about a, a pet turning and being sick and you can't do anything about it. Well, that is something that, that I can sink my teeth into, um, and, and that, to me, is the emotional core. So Stephen King writes the, uh, the, the effect of the rabies on Cujo very, very interestingly. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't turn him into a monster. All, all, the entire time, Cujo is still relatively sympathetic, um, sympathetic because something is happening to him. He's not happening upon others. He is being happened upon. Um, and so he writes here, he was continually thirsty but he had already begun to shy away from his water dish some of the time, and when he did drink, the water tasted like steel shavings. The water made his teeth ache. The water sent bolts of pain through his eyes, and now he lay on the grass, not caring about the lightning bugs or anything else. The voices of the men were unimportant rumbles coming from somewhere above him. They meant little to him compared to his own growing misery. So... You know, the the whole experience of rabies is going to be categorized by his pain, and the the effect that it takes is that he anyone that he sees the rabies makes him think that the person is causing him that pain, so he wants to cause pain to that person. 
which is an interesting take on, on the rabies and the rage, really, that infects him. So uh, his first attack, thankfully, is not Brett. Um, Gary bears this notable distinction, and King has decided to, uh, to stop teasing the reader with the threat of the rabid dog and finally unleashes the rabid dog upon us on page 111. Gary sustains a bite, but manages to make it to safety of the house. Once inside, safety sweeps over him with the relief of water down a dehydrated throat. <laughs> but, but like the true master he is, King reveals the, the figurative glass of water to be simply a mirage, a glass of sand, if you will. Whatever relief you feel uh, you may have had is now gone, never having truly existed because Cujo at that moment, just as we are able to catch our breath from the tension, bursts through the screen door and rips him to shreds. So Joe is next. After he finds Gary's mutilated body, Cujo bursts out of the basement like a shark from the depths of the ocean. In fact, in all honesty, you know, this novel sounds like an elevator pitch. Jaws meets Old Yeller. And it's an effective elevator pitch, and I wish that it lived up to that concept. I just think that it, it falls apart. Well, I'll say this. All the scenes with Cujo as the villain work 100%. Everything else um, should have been cut out, but I'll get to that later. Uh, Cujo's attacks are, are vicious and graphic, but they're not without a purpose. King needed to establish the physical threat of this beast. If he can't do that, then the novel's central conflict is toothless. We have to feel trapped within that car, out of options, powerless, against the fury on four legs that decimated two grown men. Once Donna is trapped with Tad, Cujo turns into a full-blown monster that both Tad and Donna recognize from Tad's closet. Cujo acts less like a rabid dog and more like a knowing villain, even playing with his food, as evidenced from the scene on page 174. There was a soft, scuffling, scratching noise on her side of the car. She didn't want to look, but she was helpless to stop herself. Her head began to turn, as if forced by an invisible, yet powerful hand. She could hear the low creak of the tendons in her neck. Cujo was there, looking in at her. His face was less than six inches from her own. Only the safety glass of the driver's side window separated them. Those red, bleary eyes stared into hers. The dog's muzzle looked as if it had been badly lathered with shaving cream that had been left to dry. Cujo was grinning at her. Whatever issues I have with this novel, uh, I do not have with the scenes with Cujo and Donna. I think they're incredibly effective. Um, you know, the sense of claustrophobia um, and tension while uh, Donna and Tad are trapped in the car are um, very, very palatable. Um, palpable, uh, very, very powerful. Uh, so, I mean, any issues I have, it's not about his ability to write that, that kind of tension. Um, and as in, as seen with that particular scene, I mean, he is a monster. He is a villain, uh, who is just playing with his prey. And we get another scene inside his head on, uh, page 220. Uh, and, and during that particular scene, Cujo's conflict mirrors Donna's own you know, linking the two characters despite their hatred of one another at that point. Like Donna, Cujo is thirsty, you know, and, and he's unable to drink from forces he can't control, you know, much like Donna. But in his case, it's the rabies, which has taken such a hold of him, his hatred overpowers his need to drink water. So it just shows how strong a hold the rabies has. Um, and it's basically just rerouting all the circuitry in his brain and his body to... to 
not ignore, but acknowledge, you know, acknowledge that I need water, but I hate the water for what it's doing to me, you know, more than I actually need it. And, and again, it just reference, you know, reinforces just the, the effect of the rabies. Um, you know, and then ultimately it's just, it's one, it's one horror scene after the other with Cujo. Um, and, and just keep in mind, if you picture Cujo as the shark from Jaws, it's, it's a very appropriate, uh, visual image. And his attacks are very similar to a shark. Whenever, you know, someone enters his, you know, his domain, he attacks. So whenever, you know, someone steps into the water, there's a shark attack. It, it's very, very similar. It's, you know, uh, it's unrelenting. Um, it's remorseless. Uh, and they're just brutally vicious. You know, Sheriff Bannerman arrives, and Sheriff Bannerman is quickly dispatched um, through a, a very, very vicious and, and I would say probably the goriest um, scene in the novel. But through it all, and, and, and with the final showdown in which he is he's murdered murdered he's killed he's put out of his misery um by donna who you know had every right to to kill him at that point um you know king gives us one final um reminder on the last page uh just a little twist of the knife uh and it says shortly following those mortal events in the cambered dooryard cujo's remains were cremated the ashes went out with the trash and were disposed of at the Augusta Wastement Treatment Plant. It would have perhaps been amiss to not point out that he had always tried to be a good dog. He had tried to do all the things his man and his woman, and most of all his boy, had asked or expected of him. He would have died for them if that had been required. He had never wanted to kill anybody. He had been struck by something, possibly destiny or fate, or only a degenerative nerve disease called rabies free will was not a factor uh you know that just that to me that that breaks my heart um he was a good boy and it wasn't his fault um you know sometimes things happen in in Stephen King's books um where bad things happen to to good people and they make choices like Carrie White and everything that happened I think it was Carrie's fault I mean there was definitely you know effects that had taken place beforehand which led her to to enact the revenge, but she was in control. Cujo was not in control, and uh, like I said, that you know he was a victim, um, much like Tad and Donna was. Which brings us to Donna. So here, this is this is the thing. Uh, I just don't find any sympathetic characters outside of Cujo, because she's introduced almost immediately as a cheater, having already established an extramarital affair with Steve Kemp with whom she has had enough. You know, the scene in which she attempts to break it off with Steve's, Steve reveals the central fear in the novel, and it's a lack of control. More specifically, the fear that when logic fails, you must admit that you're in a wilderness in which humans are not designed to thrive or even survive. All right, so that's the way it's it's going to turn out for her, but it first rears its head when she's thinking about when she was in a, when she was a teacher, and there's a fear that would overcome her when she would uh, use her voice to get louder and louder. And what happens when you use your loudest voice, and it has no control, and the kids are still, you know, doing what they want to do? At that point, you realize that you cannot control these kids. And so, if that is her idea of a a lack of control. Um, then what's going to happen to her later on 
is is an incredible uh, slap in the face, so to speak. Um, and she ultimately perseveres, um, and she faces her demons in the form of this dog, and, and she overcomes it, but not without a great loss. But uh, although Cujo was the one who was bitten by the rabid bat, the invisible rage that came to Castle Rock hiding in the summer heat is breathed in by the many Castle Rock inhabitants. And Donna is not immune to this, and she releases her anger on Steve. And Steve responds with his own rage, almost giving it um, into it completely. So it's, it's happening here that, and it's just another example, that what's happening to Cujo is happening to pretty much everyone. And this is why I think it's a very ugly novel. You know, everyone is acting ugly. And Donna here, she's just, what, she's in the throes of a quarter-life crisis. She's uprooted from the life with which she is comfortable. She's feeling stranded and helpless, trapped in rural Maine, a fear that will become life-threatening and quite literal as the book advances, you know? You know, she feels stuck in her house, uh, you know, stuck in a, a routine that she didn't necessarily want or ask for. Everything that she knows is gone, you know, and she's a New York City girl, and now she's in you know, rural Maine, uh, and she just, she just doesn't feel like herself anymore, uh, feeling in the wilderness, and she's gonna be in the wilderness, and everything that the wilderness entails, and when that finally does occur, you know, we do feel as trapped as she does, and here, King is able to demonstrate his gifts as a writer, and remember that he does not remember writing this, which goes to show just how good he is as a writer. His first confrontation with Cujo, um, is a nail-biting encounter. You know, she's trying to run, um, but she bumps her leg. She almost slides out of control before managing to steady herself with the hood of her car, closing the door just in time, the shock of the dog at the window, the race to close Tad's window before Cujo reaches him. It's all incredibly tense, and King does not let up. He's punishing um, us just as much as he's punishing his characters. And he just keeps finding new and devious ways to make us squirm with anxiety by providing simple conflicts that mean life or death. None more potent than Donna's choice whether or not to make a break for the, the, the camber's door a mere eight steps away. If she makes it, she's safe, potentially. But what if she arrives and the door is locked? Those eight steps back to the car might as well be 8,000 because Cujo would make sure that you'd never slide behind that wheel again. Or Donna's simple choice to turn the ignition or to not turn the ignition. Is the engine cool enough? And when she does, and the car does start, King plays with her and us, like a child offering a candy bar to his eager younger sibling before smashing it on the ground for the pure pleasure of watching them, and in this case, us, cry. King has no intention of letting these two characters go, and his decision to dangle a little bit of false hope for them is a cruel move on his part. Um... But, you know, through it all, his ability to describe a scene, it, it's, it's just definitely on point. You know, it, 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 every scene that he writes with, with Donna places us firmly in the car with them. You know, I feel every drop of saliva drying out of my mouth. You know, I feel every bead of sweat. You know, every heavy lungful of, of thick, stuffy air. Uh, you know, it goes on and on, and, and that claustrophobia and the heat, the, the oppressive, oppressive, stuffy heat, it just grows and grows, and, you know, I mean, when, when Tad starts to slip and you see his deterioration, you know, I mean, it's, King has done a good job, it doesn't come out of nowhere, you know, it's, it's been growing and growing and growing. 
So, after the botched rescue by Bannerman, when Tad starts to slip into a deep unconsciousness, at this point, I mean, Donna has no choice but to face the monster alone. Stripped of all civility, she confronts the predator in the tall grass with a bat so shattered it might as well be a spear. It's a striking image, and all of this woman's fear, trapped in the wilderness of Maine, becomes very much literal as she devolves in, uh, into a primal showdown between man and beast. So, I, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know what was intentional, what wasn't intentional on the part of the, the writer. But certain things in this novel, you know, do work. You know, her, her feeling trapped um, is played out during the events of, of her being in the Pinto and her coming face to face with the, the, the dog um, you know, represents her coming face to face with, you know, the, the feeling of, of being trapped within, you know, Maine. And it definitely comes at a loss. So, I mean, I, I don't know really what Stephen King is trying to say here with that, though. I mean, is, is, is Tad at that point a sacrifice for her extramarital affair, for her infidelity? If, if so, I mean, what the hell? I mean, Tad, you know, didn't do anything. It's not fair to that character. It's, it's not fair to Vic. It's not fair to Donna. You know they were gonna work through it. You know I had I had every you know you know belief that they that they were gonna be okay. You know it was gonna be a struggle, but I mean Vic didn't think that he was gonna leave Donna. Um, I thought I thought there and Donna you know admitted that you know she just was losing herself and she made a mistake. So you know just King is just like I said from the very get go just punishing and punishing these characters. So you know like I said it's just an ugly book through and through i mean no matter how you cut it it's an ugly book about ugly people that ends with the fatal dehydration of a child and the main character beating a dog to death you know a little hope comes at the end when brett receives a new dog but you know i mean without the oppressive influence of joe you know the the, the cambers have an opportunity to start a new life rage free yeah that's nice and all but it's little it's like too little too late to be a truly hopeful ending it's like placing fresh flowers on a recent grave it's a kind touch, but it's ultimately pointless. And and here's, I guess, the... Uh, I don't know if it's if it's the bigger issue, because just for me, reading the novel was unenjoyable because of just how ugly it was, but um, this book is too long. You know, I mean, there are just chapters and chapters and chapters of Donna and Vic and Charity that just do not contribute to the story and don't further what's already established of the characters. Once Charity leaves Castle Rock... The narrative does not need to check in with her again. And yet it does again and again and again. So I, I get that it's a brutal book and the description of a rabid Cujo are very impressive and he creates a tangible feeling of claustrophobia and fear once Donna and Tad get trapped within the Pinto. It's just that there's large portions of extraneous material that could have and probably should have been cut down to streamline. What's a very simple story? Instead, it just gets bogged down with too much character work that slows the momentum and made me lose interest. Once Donna gets stuck at the garage, I really don't need to read about Vic. All that matters is that, is that Donna and Tad are stuck at this place. In fact, by focusing only on them, it would have added to their isolation, claustrophobia, and vulnerability. If at that point they are the only characters with whom we interact then that would only reinforce the feeling that they are the only two left in this world, abandoned with a bloodthirsty monster. 
So I'm going to switch gears. I, I've kind of talked around Jaws a little bit, but I really want to dive into the water, so to speak, with Jaws. I mean, when Spielberg adapted Jaws from Peter Benchley's novel, he and Carl Gottlieb, the screenwriter, made a small but crucial change to the story. Just as in the novel, Chief Brody, Matt Hooper, and Quint go off in their quest to slay the shark. However, Spielberg realized once his characters stepped away from land, he couldn't have them return to it. From that point forward, we are on board the Orca with the three of them. This choice simulates the sensation of being far from home, and in the case of Jaws, in the natural environment of the monster they are currently hunting, an environment man was not designed to exist within, an alien planet whose alpha predator could swallow you whole. Unlike the book, once they set sail, they don't return until the shark is killed. In the novel, however, they return each night. Structurally, each night they return, the tension is released. Whereas in the movie, the tension has nowhere to go and builds up with the characters as well as in the viewer. I feel like King released the tension every single time he stepped away from Donna and Tad. Every time we checked in with, um, with Vic or Steve Kemp or Charity or Brett. It's just, it was this release. And I feel like there shouldn't have been a release. Alright, like I said, this is, um, this is 300 pages. Um, I'm sorry, it's, it's 400 pages. This novel could have been maybe 150, 200 pages tops, um, and it could have been lean and mean, but it wasn't. Um, I just, I, I didn't, I, I didn't need to read about these other characters. I mean, the, the heart of the story is of a mother and son trapped in a car with a rabid dog lying in wait. Everything else is so disconnected to that premise that it just doesn't fit. In other novels, King can spend time with the characters, and this characterization can help serve the story. So look at Salem's Lot. You know, King dedicated whole chapters to the goings-on of the townspeople, and in that book, it was necessary to the plot of that particular novel. That's a story about a small town corrupted by vampires. To make that corruption really pop, it's important to spend time with the townspeople. That novel had a macro view, but Cujo's view is incredibly micro. Everything outside of the central conflict doesn't matter because it doesn't serve the conflict at all. There are many options King could have taken um, to place the Trentons in this predicament. All that we needed to know is that Donna and Tad are stuck alone. That's it. There are many roads that we could have taken to get there, but King took a very circuitous road um, and, and kept revisiting the little you know tra uh, trails and pathways that he had taken to get there. Um, but a long, drawn-out affair, complete with a spurned lover and a husband on the verge of a professional crisis, is unimportant to a story about a rabid dog. Still not convinced? King spends two paragraphs on page 193 detailing the mailman's recent increase in farting. I don't need it. I like character ticks and traits and quirks. That's fine. But honestly, this book did not need to be as long as it was. And all of this padding just took away what could have been a really strong novel. So scenes like Steve's visit to Donna's house are beyond unnecessary. From a plot perspective, it doesn't contribute to the propulsion of the story and certainly doesn't add to the conflict. It reminds the reader that a red fog of rage has come with the heat, you know, a monster that had once taken the form of Frank Dodds, but King had already symbolized the rage as a rabid dog. So while it's neat on a surface level to watch other town members succumb to their own strains of, uh, strains of metaphorical rabies, as I've stated, it, it just doesn't add anything. You know, I just, you know, going back to Jaws again, Spielberg, 
you know, cut out, you know, some some B plots and some subplots to the, the, the novel that didn't help the story. It almost got in the way. So in a story like Jaws, which is so similar to Cujo in the sense that it's just it's man versus shark, it's woman versus dog, all right? It's just, it's, you know, it's the protagonist versus nature is really what it comes down to. In the novel of Jaws, the mayor is involved with the mafia, you know, Hooper's having an affair with Chief Brody's wife, and these things don't really add to the central conflict. Yeah, I get it. It can create tension on the orca between Hooper and Brody, uh, but really, I mean, all that we needed to know is that there's a shark, they're hunting the shark. Hey, the shark's hunting them, right? That's all that we need. All that we need in this book is mother and son are trapped in a car. There's a monster waiting outside of the car. Mom needs to get help for her son, but can't because of that monster outside of the car. That's really all that the novel has to be. Um, so, like I said, I, I just... Between the ugliness and, and the, the unnecessary parts, which I'll be honest, I, I... You know, let's just say I would get to page 200. I would look in the next couple pages. Oh, we're following a mailman now. Oh, we're failing. We're following a mailman for five pages. I would look at each page. I wouldn't necessarily read it. Um, I would read the beginning. I would read the end to see physically where the mailman is and where the mailman is going. Um, and you know, by the, the the last couple paragraphs of the final scene with you know whatever character is not in the car, you, you tell you can tell what the character is doing and whether or not the the character is going to be. Um, you know, uh, uh, a Scooby snack for, for Cujo or not, um, which means that everything in between didn't really matter. Um, so I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't pay as much attention to this novel as I should have, you know, for, for someone that that's reviewing it. Um, but I, I had a hard time. I'll be honest. I just had a hard time. So, uh, we have some, uh, some references cause I just want to get away from the review itself. Um, so some references here. We have the Dead Zone, first and foremost, and make no mistake, while this novel serves as a standalone story, it's a sequel. It's it's a sequel to the Dead Zone. The monster of the Dead Zone returns in Cujo in the form of a rabid dog, and King even gives us a confrontation between the evil um, and the Dead Zone's supporting character, Castle Rock Sheriff George Bannerman. He is reintroduced in the novel when Vic contacts the police over his concern. Um, and then King maneuvers... Bannerman to the, the, the Cambridge garage where he's immediately disposed of by Cujo. In the attack, Bannerman actually recalls Frank Dodds um, when he's looking into his eyes and like he realizes that it's Frank. So again, this is not, it's supernatural. I mean, this is the reincarnation of Frank Dodds uh, that has taken over through rabies, this this poor dog. Um, and Bannerman, the, the, the good-hearted small-town cop who had once reached out to a local psychic to protect his people, dies a horribly violent and gory death. This guy feels every bite and is overcome by fear and confusion. You know, it's it's a brutal end for a relatively good man. You know, he does his best to reach his cruiser to call for help, but the dog is too much for him. And just like that, our two heroes from the dead zone are both dead. Here, King reminds us that he doesn't play lightly. He plays for keeps. And the characters that you might think are safe, a friendly neighborhood cop you remember from that other book, or anything but. And uh, I, don't, I don't know about references here, but uh, you know, reading about this malevolent entity in the closet reminded me of the the night shift story, the Boogeyman. And I don't know, I don't know if 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 King thought of that, 
I don't know if this is another incarnation of the the boogeyman, which feels very similar to uh, you know what what ultimately would become it in my um, review of the boogeyman in the night shift uh, review. You know, I discussed the boogeyman as being a prototype for the the monster in it it itself, Pennywise the dancing clown. You know, a shapeshifter um, that lurks in dark places and 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 feeds off children. So that. If that's what we're describing it as, this monster, um, that 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 fits the bill here. This is a, a monster that lurks in dark places, that takes many forms, and and you know feeds on children. So it didn't literally feed on on Tad, but it's responsible for Tad's death. And I, I feel like it it would have, you know, gotten uh, know, some sort of energy off of him, knowing that it was just causing so much pain and and and, and hurt and, and tension and dread and fear so I, I don't know i don't know um you know it, it could either be the the same you know entity it could be um just a different facet of the same diamond it could be um of the same species so those are just a couple uh a couple of references uh you know the the more we get into the stephen king books the more references we'll we'll see and this brings us to the point of the podcast in which I will discuss our King-isms. Our King-isms are certain tropes and patterns and traits that you will see from Stephen King book to Stephen King book. And the first one is our child, um, well, not protagonist, but uh, you know, very prominently uh, King focuses on children. So we had Danny Torrance, um, we had Charlie McGee, and now we have Tad Trenton. And uh, our number two, I discussed it, it's, it's the monster. So we have the monster in the closet that once took the form of Frank Dodds and later as the rabbit dog is very similar to the shape-shifting entity as seen in It. So I cannot wait until we discuss It and the significance of that, that book um, you know, to really just to discuss all of the, the things that Stephen King was playing with. And then we have Castle Rock. Uh, this was first introduced in Dead Zone. King starts to populate it with the townspeople who will serve as dog food for Cujo. And then number five. Okay, uh, again, I have, I have, uh, I'm always uncomfortable talking about this one, but it's it's racism. It's it's racism to denote unlikable characters. So on page one twenty six, uh, Joe recollects a time in which. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he drops the N word. That's what it, what it comes down to. And you know, so this is on tops of the uh, of the great lengths that Stephen King had gone to to establish his abuse towards his wife, as well as his small mindedness. So I understand that the use of the N word falls into that category of small mindedness. But by this point, it it's really overkill. It's it's really unnecessary. It's just it's not a word that I personally am comfortable with. Maybe that's my own thing um i don't know uh but i i don't like seeing it when i don't have to see it and then we have um commas enclosing italicized print to denote a character's thoughts you know specifically thoughts interrupting the natural throw the flow of thoughts so this is maybe stephen king's number one kingism uh you just see this again and again and we've seen it before and we're gonna see it again um, and then, uh, last but not least, uh, isolated from safety by a monster in waiting. So the, the central conflict, um, that is plaguing Donna 
and Tad is very similar to the 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 central conflict that plagues the, the main characters from the raft. Um, they're isolated. They're alone. Um, they they're very close to um, shelter and safety. You know, they can see the beach in the raft, but they can't get there because of the monster um, in the water. Same here. Donna can see the house. She can't get to the house because of the monster that's right outside. And now we've come to the part of our podcast where I like to share what I believe that the, the most important uh, textual excerpt is, um, you know, something that just uh, boils down the, the, uh, the, the plot and the, the essence of the, the novel down to, to one bite-sized um, bit. And this one's right away. In fact, I could read the whole uh, first and second pages, um, which just recounts Frank Dodds um, and the influence that Frank Dodds has had since then. But I'm going to start on page four. There were nightmares to be sure, and children who lay wakeful to be sure, and the empty Dodd house, for his mother had a stroke shortly afterwards and died, quickly gained a reputation as a haunted house and was avoided. But these were passing phenomena, perhaps unavoidable side effects of a chain of senseless murders. But time passed. Five years of time. The monster was gone. The monster was dead. Frank Dodd moldered inside his coffin. Except that the monster never dies. Werewolf, vampire, ghoul, unnameable creature from the wastes. The monster never dies. It came to Castle Rock again in the summer of 1980. That is something that, that, that concept is something that Stephen King is definitely going to play with again with it. Um, but it's, it's definitely, uh, that's his, uh, that's his thesis for this particular novel. The monster doesn't die. The monster continued, um, and the monster tore apart, um, this family and, uh, you know, I, I felt bad for them, even though they're fictional characters. It's just, it's brutal. It's brutal to to um, to read. So ultimately, I gotta say, if if um, if someone didn't know anything about Stephen King, and this was the first novel that they picked up, and it, you know, it was Cujo, and they read it, and you know, they said, "Oh, Stephen King, I don't like that guy. You know, he's mean and." It's cruel and it's just you know it's, it's blood and guts and I didn't like you know what if that's if that was one person's um, first Stephen King book and they didn't like it I uh, I completely agree if they don't ever want to read one by him you know I mean I I, would, I think that I would have a hard time kind of talking them into it if they didn't like this book um, you know I, uh, I I really think that you know a movie like Requiem for a Dream is a very effective movie I would say it's a good movie but it's a movie that I'm never going to watch again because I just think it was an unenjoyable experience. Uh, and there are parts to Cujo that are just masterfully done. So, I mean, even, you know, and I, I've taken it to town today, but, um, you know, even any issues that I have, it's still, you know, you, you see why Stephen King is Stephen King. I mean, the scenes, you know, with Donna and Tad and the Pinto are incredible. It's just I think that everything else around it should have been cut out. Um, you know, uh, but this is very similarly. I, I just, I, I think that just like Requiem for a Dream, uh, I never really want to watch that again. I don't ever really want to read Cujo again. Uh, so that, that's, 
it's the first, you know, is it negative? Is this a negative review? I don't know, but it's it's definitely the first non-positive review of of a Stephen Co- a Stephen King book so far on the Stephen King cast. So I don't know, guys. Um, next week we are going to be uh, reviewing the um, this, uh, the Cujo film adaptation before heading back into the, the the textual works of Stephen King. So I'm sorry, guys. Um, I wish that I, I could have reported um, much more positively on this one, but you know I, I definitely had some issues here. So uh, if there's any books out there that uh, you you might or, or movies that you might uh, you know want to read or watch, if you liked this particular uh, book, I mean clearly I've talked about Jaws. I would go out and watch Jaws right now. You know Jaws um, is hands down my favorite movie of all time. I think that it's a, a perfect example of storytelling. It's just great all around. Um, Man versus nature. Uh, the, the characters just really come to life. Very believable. Just so well done. Um, and then there's another, there's a novel by Jack Ketchum that if you're, you know, if you read this and you want to continue just the, the mood of just feeling beat up all the time, then, then I recommend you go out and get it. It's, it's entitled Red. Uh, and it is about a, you know, a man and his dog. Um, the dog doesn't go rabid or anything, but it's it's not the happiest story of a man and his dog, much like this is not the happiest story of a man and his dog, or a boy and his dog. Um, but, you know, it deals very similarly. It's it's about a lot of rage um, involving a dog. So it's uh, like a spiritual successor to Cujo, I guess you could say. So... Those are some uh, recommendations for you that you can go check out. And so, like I said, next week we'll be reviewing the film adaptation of Cujo. Hope everyone has a great week. Again, thank you everyone for for checking out the Stephen King cast. Feel free to drop me a line at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. If you completely disagree with me... um, then please feel free to do so. If you do agree with me, you know, feel free to tell me as well. Um, but I would just definitely love to hear it from you. So, Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. In the meantime, you know, like I said, have a great week, everyone, and I'll see you here next week. Same King Time, same King Channel, Stephen. Shit.